This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Now, it may shock or surprise some of you to know that I actually lead a, a pretty normal, quiet life away from the uh, Conspiracy Show. I spent most of this weekend outdoors with uh, Zach and North playing shinny. Shinny, that's uh, hockey, uh, for those not familiar, uh, playing up at a, a rink in, uh, in Thornhill, not too far from here, uh, behind a, a public school. And I have to say, give a shout out, really, to the community volunteers up there that are responsible for, for building and maintaining the rink there. They've done an incredible job. It's, a, it's really a lost art, uh, building and maintaining and flooding a proper outdoor rink. And this, uh, by all accounts, has been a banner year for outdoor ice rinks uh, with the, uh, the cold temperatures, particularly the occasional unseasonally warm days that we've had, followed by these bone-chilling nights. And uh, again, the result is an outdoor rink with ice just like glass. It's just been great. And the boys were out on the rink most of Saturday and again today. And uh, I even took a turn at shoveling. Lord knows I'm, I'm much handier with a shovel than I am with a hockey stick. Uh, anyway, I, 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 um, I've missed, uh, you know, getting out on the ice. And now that since I've had the boys the last eight years, I've, I've probably been out, out on the, on the rink more times in the last eight years than the preceding 30. I've missed it. Uh, here's something we're all hoping to miss. And that's a collision with a giant asteroid, which is headed our way. Have you heard about this? It's the size of five football fields and it's approaching earth. It's expected to pass by on Monday. And it'll be visible uh, through, if you've got a, a, a pair of strong binoculars, it's definitely worth a look. Get out in the backyard. Uh, because the next time uh, such an asteroid will come this close again will be in 2027. At the closest point uh, to the Earth, asteroid 2004 BL86. Can't they come up with better names for asteroids, particularly one this size? Asteroid 2004 BL86 will be at a distance of 1.2 million kilometers, which is approximately three times the distance from the Earth to the Moon, estimated to be 
a half a kilometer in diameter. It's classified by scientists as potentially dangerous. And a, a space object is considered potentially dangerous if it crosses the Earth's orbit at a distance of less than 0 0.05 uh, AU, which is approximately 19 and, a half, 19 and a half distances from the Earth to the moon, if its diameter exceeds 100 to 150 meters. Well, this is half a kilometer. That certainly uh, classifies or uh, qualifies as potentially dangerous. And it's, uh, it says here, objects of this size are large enough to cause unprecedented destruction or generate a tsunami in case they fall into the ocean. However, uh, NASA's retired manager uh, of the Near-Earth Object Programs Office at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Don Yeoman, says it poses no threat to Earth for the foreseeable future. It's a relative, relatively close approach by a relatively large asteroid, uh, but it does provide a unique opportunity to observe and learn more. Uh, Albert, the intern, is here. He tells me we're not uh, doing a hangout on air tonight due to some technical issues, but we'll be back next week with another live stream on YouTube. Uh, and incidentally, next week, it's the return of Canada's Edgar Casey, remote viewer, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, and Pastor Carl Gallops will be here as well to discuss end times prophecy and the days of trumpets. Uh, oh, and here we go. A big announcement. My Follow the Truth Summit is coming back. Follow the Truth too. Mark it on your calendar. Sunday, April 26, headed back to Oshawa, the beautiful region theater, uh, by all accounts, and this will be an evening event. Doors will open at 6 p.m., and we have another great lineup of speakers. The Honorable Paul Hellyer, Canada's former Minister of Defense and Deputy Prime Minister, will be speaking about the money mafia. Our very own paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, live and in person on spirit communication. She, she's bringing her spirit box with her for a demonstration live on stage. And I got to think that old theater up in Oshawa has uh, some ghosts. So hopefully she'll capture some on uh, on her spirit box. Canada's Edgar Casey, as I mentioned, Dr. Dr. Cottrell will be in a deep trance meditative state on stage, attempting to uh, access the Akashic record. And he'll take your questions as well. Uh, JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada, will be unpacking the Zapruder film, frame by frame. Ms. Jane Steele, formerly of Shock Talk, will uh, present The Lost and Found Tribes of Israel. Victor Vigiani will present Smoking Gun Documents, proving the government knows about and is concerned about the UFO ET reality. And this one, very excited about Dr. Gary Chang will bring his exact replica of the Shroud of Turin, which millions of Christians believe to be the actual burial uh, cloth of Christ. He'll bring an exact replica of the Shroud for a special and exclusive exhibit and uh, also make a uh, presentation. How's that for an informative and enter entertaining evening? That's Follow the Truth 2, live at the Regent Theatre, Oshawa, Sunday, April 26th. Doors open at 6. Visit followthetruth.tv for more information and for tickets, call the box office at 905-721-3399. Don't miss it. Uh, and later in the hour, I'll award one, uh, one of you a pair of tickets to follow the truth. Stay tuned and get ready to answer a conspiracy-related trivia question. All right. I mentioned uh, things you don't want to miss. Well, I don't think you want to miss this next uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, because, well... 
let me back up here. About three weeks ago, Americans, anyway, celebrated Martin Luther King Day, and Dr. King's birthday is actually January 15th, uh, but uh, the federal holiday in the U.S. is marked on the, I believe it's the third Monday of the month. And, of course, uh, Dr. King was assassinated in April uh, back in 1968. And that decade, the 60s, also saw the assassinations of JFK, Malcolm X, Robert F. Kennedy. All of these assassinations remain shrouded in mystery and controversy. But my next guest has managed to tie all of these murders together in his book, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Author, professor, historian John Kerner uh, breaks new ground in two important areas that have yet to be linked and explored by any JFK assassination historian. He argues that the CIA's secret drug trade in Laos and the president's effort to end it provided the primary motive that the CIA needed to assassinate John F. Kennedy. A lot of effort has been made to examine the president's Vietnam policy, but precious little attention has been paid to the opium trade in Laos that was making the CIA wealthy and powerful beyond its wildest dreams. His book chronicles the president's secret war with the CIA over Laos, a high-stakes game that perhaps cost him his life. John Kerner also links the JFK assassination and the drug trade with other, the other three major assassinations of the 1960s, as I mentioned, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy. Well, John Kerner, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thanks for hanging out with me for the hour. Richard, it's great to be on the show, and you mentioned hockey to start with, and uh, boy, we're down here in Buffalo, and we're proud of our Sabres. We're dead last in the league, and... It's a good place to be this year, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, it's uh, it's a sweepstakes in the draft. <laughs> yeah. It's a race to the bottom. <laughs> Hopefully right. we, the Leafs can beat you there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see, right? The Leafs are having a tough year, aren't they? Indeed, indeed. Well, we're used to it. We're used to the drought. Uh, John, uh, let's uh, talk about... You know, the the history of uh, the CIA in Southeast Asia, of course, uh, its precursor, the uh, Office of Strategic Services, uh, you know, certainly had a presence in uh, Southeast Asia uh, in the days after the, the Second World War, um, probably even before. But, but let's talk specifically about uh, the connection between intelligence groups like the OSS and the CIA uh, and... The drug trade. Does it go back to, to prohibition? Is that where it all began? Yeah, drug running has a very long and ignominious history in the United States. And just talking about, for example, in the U.S. and in Canada with the, the prohibition era, bringing illegal alcohol into western New York, for example, where I live. So there's always been a lot of different aspects to U.S. history that involve drugs. But with this particular part of U.S. history, there's a place called the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia that includes Burma, Thailand, and Laos. And that's the best place on Earth to grow opium. And the agency finds out about this in the 1950s when they start to fight communism there, when the French lose at the NBN Fu. And it's almost like they got the golden ticket and they find out about it and they don't want to leave. So President Kennedy comes into office in the 60s. And he gets word about this, that the agency is not just there to fight communism, they're also there to um, help grow, sell, and, and trade drugs. So this ends up becoming a very lucrative business for them. And just for just one example, in the week the president died 
in November 1963, the agency ships about $97,000 worth of opium to South Vietnam. So it is a, a lucrative business, and the president and also Malcolm X are, are directly in the way of this. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that uh, as the hour progresses. John Kerner is with us as we talk about uh, John F. Kennedy and uh, the CIA's drug war in Laos. Now, be, be, I mean, you have to have some sort of brokering between uh, these intelligence groups like the CIA or the OSS um, and, you know, the brokers themselves, the drug brokers, uh, the, the crime syndicates, and for, for example. So, so who were... Uh, who were the CIA dealing with in order to get the, the drugs out of the Golden Triangle and presumably into the markets in, in Europe and in, in North America? Well, one key event happens in January of 1968. The agency sets up a meeting between Vang Pao, who was an opium dealer in Vietnam and in Laos, and the meeting is between Vang Pao and Santo Tropicante. So the agency is trying to enlist the help of the mafia to bring the drugs into the American marketplace. And much of this stuff is done in a very diabolical way. In some cases, they will use the coffins <clears throat> of American GIs and stuff the bodies and the boxes with heroin and then ship them to American marketplaces to be sold in American ghettos. And Malcolm X knew this. He was talking about this for many, many years before his assassination. It was destroying America's ghettos and ruining people's lives. So... The mafia plays a role in this. Agents on the ground in our country and in the United States are also playing a key role in this, even using the bodies of, of dead GIs in Vietnam. So this is how the nuts and bolts of it gets done with the help of the mafia and men on the ground that are being employed to do this. All right, John. Uh, one well, key uh, figure is a guy named uh, David Morales. We'll John, let and, me just jump in here. We'll take a, we'll yeah, take, take a time out. We'll come back and uh, sure. continue to discuss this uh, important topic. John Kerner is with us, the author of The CIA, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Author, professor, historian John Kerner right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Many of you, no doubt, will be uh, uh, familiar with the, uh, the work of the late Gary Webb, the reporter at the San Jose Mercury News, uh, who, uh, well, a decade and a half ago, uh, started an investigative series writing about how the CIA uh, were bringing drugs into the inner cities in America. Uh, and he talked about, uh, you know, cities in the San Jose and the Bay Area. Uh, and, of course, we know what happened to Gary Webb. Uh, the official version is that he uh, died of a self-inflicted uh, a gunshot wound, however, it has been theorized that he was silenced uh, for that series of articles, again, on the CIA and their illegal drug activity. Right now, John Kerner is here connecting the dots between the assassinations of JFK, Malcolm X, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert F. Kennedy, and the CIA's secret drug trade in the Golden Triangle, specifically Laos. Uh, so, John, we were talking about uh, how the uh, the CIA was getting the the drugs out um, of of Vietnam? Were they also making the um, the opium available to to uh, U.S. soldiers in Vietnam? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's important to understand too. How it connects to the military industrial complex that the the whole war in Vietnam has to keep going, and anyone who is in the way of it uh, has to be eliminated because. The GIs in Vietnam are a customer base to sell the heroin to. And 
many of these soldiers come home from the war addicted to heroin. In fact, about maybe 200,000, in fact, are coming home from the war addicted to that drug. And heroin, it, it, it's, it's so um, addictive, it's so enticing. The men are going through hell in combat. They need some kind of stress relief, and heroin provides that for them. And about 60,000 kill themselves in part from addictions to drugs, heroin specifically. And in Laos, it plays into this too. Um, the president's being pressured to go to war in Laos too. There's a civil war going on there too. It's right next to Vietnam. And if, this, if, the, if the war spreads to there, the Joint Chiefs of Staff tells JFK that the war would require 60,000 ground troops. And that would be, again, 60,000 more customers for the agency to sell drugs to. Now, you mentioned uh, Gary Webb. There was another man named uh, Louis Lomax, who was another journalist. And he was going to also, uh, in this case, he was going to do a, a movie about Malcolm X and the connections that the agency had to his assassination. And he was killed on July 31st, 1970, before he could do a movie about um, the connections to the assassination of Malcolm X. And I also can mention that there's been some unusual things that happened in my life that I think might be connected to my reporting on this as well. Please tell me. Well, uh, last summer, uh, I was in very good health. Um, I've never been in the hospital before that. Um, I was exercising every day, you know, playing tennis, what I usually do. And then all of a sudden I got struck down with this horrible illness. Um, I lost almost 50 pounds. I had to have my throat cut into three separate times. My lungs had to be drained. There was all kinds of issues with my, my tonsils. Everything in my body seemed to be just collapsing. And the doctors kept asking me if I'd ever been to Southeast Asia. And I've never been there. In fact, I've never even left the country except for uh, going to... Uh, a Blue Jays game about five years ago, but I've never been to Southeast Asia. And they said, I got some kind of illness that only comes from there. It has never once shown up ever in the United States. What are we talking about, a, like a virus or some sort of a pathogen? Right. or Some kind of blood-borne virus wow. that they said must have been deliberately given to me. They thought I most likely had been poisoned somehow. And they said there was really no reason I should have survived it. It usually kills people within about two days. And I somehow it was able to, to make it through. I, again, I'm just now kind of recovering my voice. And they said, there is no reason you ever should have got this. Does it make any sense? And that was right when my book was being put into publication. <clears throat> that is remarkable and scary. Um, it, is, it's a, it is frightening. Now, uh, let, let's get back to Laos uh, for a moment. And, of course, the, the, uh, the CIA was running this, uh, this covert war in Laos. And, in fact, CIA Director Richard Helms at the time, mm-hmm. a very interesting character uh, throughout right. history, um, but, but uh, was you know, involved in the, uh, the overthrow of Allende in Chile and, and uh, I believe later served as ambassador to Iran when the Shah was, was still um, in power there. Um, but he was sort of, I mean, he, he characterizes the, the, the CIA's operation in Laos as the, the war that we won, meaning, you know, while the U.S., they lost the war in Vietnam, they won the war uh, in, in Laos. But, of course, there is, we may, many of us are familiar with that movie that came out, I guess, in the, the 80s sometime, Air America, which was this airline secretly owned by the CIA. Right. And this was supposedly a, a pretty vital component in the agency's operations in Laos. Uh, but... Oh, it was 1990. Air America came out, and uh, it and and it talks about how 
uh, Air America was essentially used to run drugs. Now, uh, I mean, how, there's two, we have two different versions of history, uh, and some say that that's a distorted view, that the idea that the CIA was using Air America to run drugs. How do we know, you know, that that wasn't a bum rap? Well, a lot of reporting has been done on that, including my own and Alfred Bacori's reporting. And ever since my book came out, too, and even before it, I've gotten some emails and contacts from people who have actually been in Vietnam and Laos who have said that they've actually seen the opium on the, on the aircrafts, on the planes themselves. So they've witnessed that the opium has been, was being run for many, many years in Southeast Asia. The agency was doing all kinds of things with it. They were lining their own pockets. They even created a, a gambling casino in one of the Laotian capital cities that they ran for many, many years. And this was a lucrative operation that they just would not let go of. And anyone in the way of it, they would eliminate, including President Kennedy and Malcolm X, especially Robert Kennedy, too. He was um, a big threat to them as well because he had conducted his own investigation and had concluded that the agency had, in fact, killed his brother. And one reason that he wanted to run for president in 68 was to dismantle the agency and expose them for the... um, what they had done to kill his brother. And if he got that done, there would have been executions for treason, and they would have not been able to operate into the 60s and, and 70s and create the different things today, like a country facing like the war on terrorism, for example, that in part comes from the things that they have done to create American anger, um, American, anger against our country, I guess you should say, <clears throat> throughout the world. And, and how far up the chain of command within the CIA uh, were people aware of this, this drug trade in the Golden Triangle? For example, I mentioned CIA Director Richard Helms at the time. Was he aware, according to your research? Yes, it seems like the very high command was aware of this and actually running it. Uh, they appointed men like Ted Shackley and David Morales to take part in this operation and make sure that it got done efficiently and was done to uh, the benefit of all those involved. And, in fact, David Morales is key to this. Uh, he's the one that really sets up all of the operations, like at PASC and other places in Laos. And Morales ends up becoming connected to the RFK assassination and the JFK assassination, too. Uh, e. Howard Hunt, on his deathbed, he confesses that he was involved in the JFK assassination and that David Morales was involved, too. And not only that, you might know about a guy named Shane O'Sullivan. He did a documentary for the BBC back in 2006, and he did this reporting over the course of a number of years. And he concluded that, again, David Morales was at the Ambassador Hotel Ballroom in downtown Los Angeles the night that, that Robert Kennedy was killed. So this man, Morales, who the agency appoints to you know help run the operations in Laos, we can connect directly to both JFK and also RFK as well. How much money was, uh, drug money, was coming out of the Golden Triangle uh, and, and presumably lining the CIA pockets uh, leading up to the days prior to JFK's assassination? You were talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. <clears throat> In fact, it gets to the point where so much money is being spent and, and so much money is being made, they need to find different ways to use it. And, and one way, of course, is to expand Air America, and the other thing is to push for a more a larger customer base to sell the heroin too. So if if we have uh, an expanding war in, in Vietnam and in Laos, then the agency can expand their customer base. And again, if you look at this from the perspective of 
anyone who's involved, if the president or Malcolm X or anyone is, is speaking out against the Vietnam War, this will directly undercut their ability to exist. And at that point in time, the agency is not all that very old. I mean, they're just a relatively new agency, a new organization, and they could be eliminated. The president was at war with them, and they're at war with him. It was a very struggle for their very existence, and Laos was where this all really played out. Well, hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's certainly you know a lot of money today. It was even more money back in, in the early 1960s, but one might uh, argue, well, that hardly seems like enough money to kill a standing president over. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands. I mean, maybe, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of millions, but hundreds of thousands, really? Well, I just mean like in, in per month. If we add this up over the course of many years, we're talking about millions, certainly. And they, they understand that if they can stay there, they can expand the marketplace to the United States and other parts of the world. So it, it's all about the potential for what can happen in the future. And as time goes on, the drug trade does expand all over the place. And then we are talking about millions. Because in 1968, when they set up shop with the mafia, when Chapacante gets involved, then we are talking about a lot of money coming in all over the world. And again, Gary Webb talks about this too in his research with the with the Mercury News. So when you get this whole chronology going in the 1950s, when it begins, into the 60s, and in the 70s, you can see how it builds and how it gets more money as time goes on. And that at that point, you can kind of recognize the potential that they see. And again, if anything gets in the way of that, then they can take steps to eliminate anyone who's involved. Author, professor, historian John Kerner is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. The book, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Uh, so I guess then, uh, the, uh, in terms of, of, of Jack Kennedy, the nail in his coffin was when he announced that he would have uh, withdrawn all troops... Uh, from South Asia by 1965. That was uh, I, I, the gist of what he announced, correct? Right. He, he approves that in October of, of 63, that there's going to be a phased withdrawal of troops from Vietnam by 1965. And then over the course of his administration, he also has a number of things to resist going to war in Laos. The president gets a peace negotiation settled in 1962, and to make that work for Laos, he implements and puts in place a number of different men who you can count on <clears throat> to keep the peace in Laos. But the agency assassinates them to, pr- to promote and provoke war in Laos, which they hope will force the president to go to war there, like they try to do with the Bay Pigs invasion in Cuba. So they're always trying to trick the president, try to go to war in Vietnam, in Cuba, and in Laos, and he resisted every step of the way. Well, if if the war had ended in 1965 rather than 1973, that's eight mm-hmm. years, uh, you know, eight fewer years where the uh, the CIA is, is presumably making this drug money from the opium trade in Laos. Eight fewer years of uh, the military industrial complex, you know, building new Bell helicopters and M16s and 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 so forth. Now, I can see the military industrial complex. To me, it would sound, it would seem that the military industrial complex, the defense contractors, um, uh, would have far more to lose than the the drug trade. Well, you see, it's all connected, really. I mean, they all are really in this together, because if either one goes away, they both lose out. Because the agency needs those men to sell heroin too. They have to have a marketplace to sell the drug to. And 
many of the men who I've talked to and have spoken to, they, they've, they've known and seen an interview the other week with a veteran from the war, and he said drugs were so prevalent in Vietnam, they were being sold all the time, heroin especially. So if the industrial complex ends up losing out, so does the agency too, because they can't sell the heroin to those GIs any longer. And that's where it all starts. They sell the drugs in South Vietnam to these men. And they, and they want more access to a bigger marketplace in Laos as well. And the German Chief of Staff says, if we're going to go to war there, we'll, have, we'll need 60,000 men to sell the drugs to, 60,000 ground troops. So the two things are very much linked together. You can't really separate them. They, they really work hand-in-hand, <clears throat> the agency and the industrial complex. They really need each other in, in, in a sense that the, the drugs can be sold and defense contracts can be uh, can be made as well. What was the CIA uh, doing with the money uh, aside from just lining their own pockets? Uh, was that was the drug money being funneled into other CIA operations? Yes, it all goes into their black budget, and then they can use it for operations elsewhere in the world. And they also got into gambling. That's one of the big things they started to do as well in Vietnam and in Laos. They got into the gambling industry, so. Both of these things kind of help them um, promote their own interests and take part in other assassinations and overthrows throughout the world. And again, I, I want to talk a bit about the effect of this this has on modern times. I think we don't really realize how much damage this agency has done throughout the world. A lot of the things that people hate about the United States come from the meddling that they've done in the Middle East and in Africa, overturning leaders that were elected democratically. And again, if they didn't, if they never existed, or RFK dismantles them in 1969, then I would argue that there is no war on terrorism today. And we also know that these four men, uh, JFK, uh, Malcolm X, um, Dr. King, and Robert Kennedy, all four of these men were big advocates for the working class. Dr. King was going to start a poor people's campaign, which would have achieved lots of success under an RFK administration. So you probably could, you know, go forward in time from that point, and you could probably conclude that there is the income inequality today, this big gap in wealth that we have in the world that that probably does not even exist today. So there is so much damage done from these assassinations that we can just trace back to the 1960s. Well, uh, I know that uh, Dr. King, um, his. He was fine, I think, in terms of uh, he was being tolerated as long as he was talking about equal rights and and uh, and civil rights and so forth. Right. Uh, but when he made that speech, um, I think it was in Riverside Riverside Church, his declaration against that was in New York, is uh, a year to the day, I think, to his assassination. Right. Uh, when he we made we made he made his speech about Vietnam. Uh, largely because he saw uh, uh, photographs. Uh, William Francis Pepper shared a lot of uh, his photos of what was going on in Southeast Asia with Dr. King, and and, uh, that really cemented in Dr. King's mind that he had to speak out against Vietnam. That's when he became a threat. Uh, So um, we're starting to connect some dots here for sure. John Kerner stays with us here on The Conspiracy Show as we continue to talk about JFK, the CIA, and their secret drug trade in Laos. Back with more. Don't go away. And we'll get back to our conversation with author, historian, Professor John Kerner uh, regarding JFK and the CIA and their uh, secret drug trade in Laos. Uh, was that the motivation for Kennedy's murder? Uh, in the meantime, 
I mentioned our new uh, Follow the Truth conference coming up April 26th at the Region Theater in Oshawa, an evening event. Here's your chance now uh, to win a free pair of tickets. In, here's your trivia question. Uh, in the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, Donald Sutherland played the mysterious Mr. X. You may remember the scene. Uh, and Mr. X meets with JFK investigator Jim Garrison in Washington and revealed some interesting details regarding the assassination in Dallas in November 63. Let's hear a short clip, Tim. Anyway, after I came back, I asked myself, why was I, the chief of special ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas. So I decided to check it out. And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protests of the unit commander. All right, that's a little bit of uh, Donald Sutherland's Mr. X in Oliver Stone's JFK. Now, Stone's Mr. X character was based on an actual person. He was the chief of special operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President Kennedy. So, for a pair of passes... To follow the truth to my live event in Oshawa, April 26th, what real-life individual was the character Mr. X based upon? Now, Tim Spreen in the other room, my technical producer, is looking for the third caller at 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free at 866 866- 740-4740, Third caller with the correct answer, and you receive a pair of tickets to follow the truth April 26. All right, back to our conversation with uh, John Kerner. Now, um, when did Malcolm X, I mean, can you cite a specific uh, a public statement when he talked about this this drug trade that was going on in, in Laos uh, by the CIA? Well, there are a number of times he talks about it. Um, he, he actually cites specifically Alan Dulles in one of his ad- uh, addresses, just a few months before his assassination, the former CIA director. And he also tells his biographer um, that he feels that the different threats on his life are not being done by the Muslims, they're being done by the CIA. In fact, one time that he is speaking in Egypt, just a few months before his own assassination, he is poisoned at a restaurant that he was at. And he would have died that day had they not acted quickly and pumped his stomach. And you know for a fact that had been done by the agency. So another time he tries to go to France, can't get into France because the French government tells him that the agency is going to kill him there. They don't want it done on their soil. So there are a number of things happening that are making him a threat. And he's starting to say specifically that the white man's poison is killing the, the American ghettos. But it's not only that. He's also speaking out against the Vietnam War. And his, his protests against the Vietnam War are also pretty early on. We're talking about 1963, 1962, when the, the public at large is still, in, for the most part, in favor of the war. So he's an early voice, a key voice, that is speaking out against both drugs and the war that's making him a target. And how about, uh, um, I mentioned the Riverside uh, Church speech in New York, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., 
April 4th, 1967, again, a year to the day when he was assassinated. And that was when he started to speak out about Vietnam, really, for the first time. Prior to that, it was just civil rights and and, uh, equal rights and so forth. Um, But did he speak specifically about this drug trade uh, going on in Laos? Yes, he speaks about drugs in general, but the war itself as well. And the way we can connect the assassination to drugs is another way, too, with the assassins themselves. Okay, the assassins for Dr. King came from Operation Phoenix, and that's been proven by a guy named Douglas Valentine. He did research on this back in 1990, and he proved that the assassins from his research came from Operation Phoenix. And Operation Phoenix was what was being used by the agency to run the drug trade in Laos. And, in fact, one guy that was part of the operation was, of course, David Morales, as I mentioned before. Right. So we can connect this, this Operation Phoenix directly to the King assassination through a guy named Douglas Valentine. So there is that aspect to it. We talked about Morales with the, the RFK assassination, being at the Ambassador Hotel Ballroom, and also he's involved with the JFK assassination, too, through me, from me, Howard Hunt's admissions. So they all connect, really, through this one man. And I think that's one way we can connect it through the assassins themselves. Now, the shooters uh, for for Jack Kennedy. Um, you know, I've I've heard that it was um, uh, that there were people like Nicoletti in, involved from the Chicago uh, mobsters, uh, Giancana's, um, I guess number one or number two guy. It was a Charles Nicoletti. Um, there were others that have been been cited as possible trigger men in Dallas. Uh, what do you th- what do you think? What has your research shown? Who do you think were the shooters, and and how do they connect with the the drug trade in Southeast Asia? Well, the way I can connect them is again through E. Howard Hunt. Hunt is this man again who is Watergate burglar. He's from Nixon's administration, obviously a member of the agency. It probably was one of the three tramps photographed by the Dallas photographer in Dealey Plaza. He most likely was there at the assassination site. And on his deathbed, you, you probably know he admits that he was involved with the assassination. And according to him, Devin Morales is the one who picks the assassins, that he, of course, is the one that arranges for the assassination himself. He's, he's part of this directly. So, again, it's this key man, Morales, that I keep pointing to that can pull us back to the drug trade, back to Southeast Asia, back to the drugs. And, again, it's from Hunt, who was there in the conspiracy with the assassins himself, planning it right and directly in the agency. All right. We'll take another time out, come back and finish with historian, author, Professor John Kerner, connecting the dots, JFK, the CIA, and the secret drug trade in Laos. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And congratulations to Frank Lumeri. Uh, who called in with the correct answer to our, our trivia question and won a pair of tickets to Follow the Truth 2, happening April 26th at the Region Theatre in Oshawa, hosted by yours truly, and six, at least six, amazing uh, speakers. Uh, check out the website for more details, followthetruth.tv. John Kerner uh, stays with us. Oh, the correct answer, incidentally, was Fletcher Prouty. Mr. X was based on the real-life character uh, Fletcher Prouty who was the, uh, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, under John F. Kennedy. All right. Now, um, wh- I mean, what is this, this, this CIA involvement in this drug trade? Uh, I, I guess it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but what does it say about this so-called you know, war on drugs that's been going on in the United States for the last 40-plus years, John? It's just so hypocritical. Yeah, it really is hypocritical. I mean, it's, it's so sad, too. I mean, I've 
talked to a lot of veterans who who suffer from heroin addiction, and and my, my own family has had um, many members in the military who served in really all branches. And my heart just goes out to them. I mean, they just they, they're so victimized by this drug. It is such a an easy drug to get addicted to, and the the type of combat that these veterans had to go through in Vietnam, it's just almost tailor made to alleviate their stress. And Again, for the men who in Vietnam were victimized by this, they came home to a country that didn't even accept them back, and 60,000 killed themselves. And I mentioned before that they even were using the coffins of these dead soldiers to ship heroin to the United States. I mean, how disrespectful can you get to our veterans? Beyond, beyond, yes. And so when you look at uh, geopolitically uh, conflicts around the world uh, today, uh, well, let's let's talk about Afghanistan. We're all familiar with the um, the right. poppy fields in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, how how much of that conflict was based on controlling the the, the poppy fields, the opium, uh, and thus the heroin in in Afghanistan? I think it's directly related to that. I think it's one of the big reasons why it hasn't been explored yet. And hopefully, my research will encourage others to look into that. Because I don't think it's a coincidence, because nowadays um, th- that place is the best place to grow opium in the world. And opium, of course, gives us heroin, it gives us morphine, codeine, all kinds of things that we uh, use all throughout the world. And the agency's history, I mean, you can't put anything past them. Just going back to JFK's administration, the, the treachery that they would do. I mean, let's talk a bit about the, the Royal Ocean Army. That army was created by the CIA to, thug, to fight communism in Laos. And ostensibly, that that's why they were there. But every now and then, if they would be winning a battle or two, and the war looked like it was going to be won, and they, then they'd have to go home. What they would end up with doing is they would help destroy their own army. They would end up killing their own army soldiers and generals and officers to keep the war going in Laos perpetually, to convince JFK to commit ground troops there and, to, and even to stay in Vietnam. So to say our country can do treacherous things in Afghanistan... If you look at the historical record, uh, it's quite possible that that's what's going on there, too. I would not doubt it. Uh, but yet, we're, we're told uh, that, that part of the rebuilding program in, in Afghanistan, uh, not only you know, to, to push the Taliban back and preserve the, uh, the regime in Kabul, uh, but was also to sort of wean many of these farmers off uh, of having to sustain themselves by growing poppies. Uh, so... Uh, was the military sort of working then at, at, at cross-purposes? Did, did, did the one hand know what the other hand was doing, or, or was this just a complete lie that, in fact, you know, they, weren't, they weren't trying to, to, to get the farmers off of, off of the, the poppy fields crop? Yeah, I would suspect that there is so much going on there that will never be told because uh, it's so hard to get information out of Afghanistan. So much of it is censored. Uh, the military does not let so few reporters in there to see what's really going on. Uh, photography of dead soldiers never gets published. I mean, all the different things to see what's going on in, in a war like that, we never get a chance to see. Only years and years later, like with Laos, for example, we get to finally understand what was happening there. So perhaps in another 20 or 30 years, we'll find out that that was a true reason why the United States has stayed in Afghanistan for so many, many years. And it probably was more drug-related than it was terrorism-related. Uh, have you looked into the the CIA's possible involvement in the cocaine trade in places like Colombia? Well, it's interesting you should say that because places like Colombia 
in places like Af- Africa, too. These are places where they reached out as well. And look at Gary Webb's reporting, reporting of Alfred McCoy, and also talking about Malcolm X, too. Malcolm X was getting involved in, in African relations at the end of his life, and he was seeing firsthand that the agency was getting involved in killing leaders there and spreading drugs into Africa as well. So he was becoming a threat in part because of that, too. So you see the, the large extent of what they were doing, covering South America, Africa, and a man like Malcolm X was a key threat to their international drug trade because of his speaking out against it in our country and in Africa, too. So it's all connected. What you're saying makes perfect sense. It all has connections and these spotted webs of drugs throughout the world. Uh, I'm just thinking about the, um, you know, the, uh, the war against these traffickers in Colombia, the, uh, the Escobars, you know, part of the Medellin cartel. Um, so if what you're saying is, is true, it would stand to reason then that uh, the Medellin cartel uh, were, in fact, working alongside the CIA. Is, is that what we're to take away from this? Yeah, I think we can... We can probably conclude that they have their their tentacles in places like that because it's in their own self-interest, because they can bring in um, more drugs into our country as they have been since almost the gestation of their agency. That is what they do best. Uh, they know how to bring drugs in. They know where to bring them to, who are the right victims to victimize with. So that kind of place would be perfect for them. And, again, that's the best thing, best way I can put it. They seem to be better equipped to grow, sell, and trade drugs than to interest abroad for our country. And it really begins in the 50s when they find out that heroin and opium are so lucrative in the poppy fields of Laos. That's where it all begins. And President Kennedy, his brother, Malcolm X, and Dr. King wanted to stop the drugs in the war. They, they were stopped by them, I think, in large part because of that. It's interesting that since the uh, you know the, the privatization of the prison system in the United States, it used to be called Wacka Hut. I, I, I'm not sure who they're um, what they're called now, but um, uh, and I think it's a subsidiary of um, uh, what was Dick Cheney's uh, Halliburton. Halliburton, I believe. I could be wrong on that. I'll look into that. I believe Wacka Hut was a subsidiary of, of Halliburton, uh, but they are essentially. And these are publicly – this is a publicly traded company. Think of it. Uh, so that when more people are sent to prison and most of them are sent to prison for, for drug use, illegal drug use and so forth, uh, the stock goes up. I mean if there is, if there is a more of a, a symptom of a sick society, I, I don't know what, you know what to tell you. But obviously the, 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 there must be a connection there too. I mean with the uh, – uh, some sort of vertical integration between these uh, drug cartels, the intelligence agencies, and the, pe- the people that are running these private prison systems. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense, doesn't it? And, and historically speaking, I just want to look at this from the perspective of history. Uh, it, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's so shameful that we got to this point in the first place, because I don't think we get to this point if Robert Kennedy is not assassinated. Uh, he is the key link here in the chain. He was the man who had the courage to stand up to the agency, and he was going to hold trials for treason and have executions for the men who killed his brother and dismantle the agency completely. So if that happens in 1970, then what we're talking about right now doesn't get a chance to exist. They don't get a chance to go to Colombia, to go to to Middle America, to go to Africa. 
because they simply will not exist if RFK becomes president. So if we think about this historically speaking, we, we see a point there, the shift in inequality and in, in terrorism and drugs. It all comes from that point there in the late 60s when Dr. King and RFK get assassinated within months of each other. And I think at that point, really things start going very bad in terms of drugs, war, and terrorism. Are there any uh, smoking gun documents in, in your book uh, that you could share with us? Uh, from what perspective do you mean? Well, it, I don't know, uh, some, some sort of a, a paper trail, a memo, uh, something that would, I guess, support, uh, support your argument. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think uh, the key piece of evidence that I've seen is the Battle of Nam Tha. When I heard about that, it just convinced me that the agency was out to kill President Kennedy. And again, I got a lot of this information from archival documents from JFK Library. I listened to hours and hours of tape recordings from his administration talking about their policy towards Laos. And you get these on these little cassette tapes, and I've listened to them for weeks and months on end. And that battle at Nam Tha in May of 62, when that happens, Basically, what ends up going on there is the agency at that point in time was convinced that if they could just trick JFK to commit ground troops to Laos, then get their 60,000 customers to sell drugs to. And what they ended up doing there is they destroyed their own army to do this, an army that they had created years ago. So they go to Nam Tha and basically obliterate their entire army, this force for democracy, to trick JFK to go to war in Laos. And that key battle there, when they try to trick the president to go to war, like the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba, I think is the key piece of evidence that one of them really that shows the diabolical nature of what they could do to try to trick the president to go to war. And JFK, to his credit, does not in any way jump. He doesn't bite, and in fact he refuses to commit ground troops. And at that point in time, things get worse. They start killing the men he appoints to be leaders in Laos. They assassinate them. He pulls money away from them. Back and forth they go until they kill him in 63. In your mind, what has to change uh, in, in order to... I mean, if the CIA is responsible uh, for funneling you know, much of the, uh, the illicit drugs that makes its way into the United States, uh, and this is a, you know, obviously a colossal problem and a huge societal problem, what has to change? I mean, how, how can this problem be fixed short of dismantling the CIA? Well, one thing is recognition. I mean, I think we have to come to the recognition that we need to face our history. We need to be teaching history in, in, a, in a way that's more logical and open and honest. And if we can start at that point, then we have a hope. But our history textbooks are just basically blind to these things, to the facts. And there's reason for this. Um, you know, the Gary Webbs of the world and Louis Lomaxes of the world can testify to that. I mean, it's not easy to speak the truth. But my perspective, if we're teaching history to our students and can tell them what the truth is, then I think we have a shot for a better future in terms of trying to undermine some of the, the policies that have damaged our country so much. What are you working on next, John? I've got a book I'm working on now um, that it's more of a religious book, and it's kind of going back to my roots. I did some books about uh, Father Nelson Baker, who's up for sainthood, and I want to go back to the kind of that kind of uh, research next. And um, that, uh, me hopefully coming out in uh, maybe a year or two.
working on that now. Something a little more uplifting. I would imagine you'd, you'd want to take on a project after... Kind of like a Dan Brown type of book. Oh, I it's, see. Um, okay. Something like that. A religious uh, mystery involving uh, Jesus, actually. And, uh, well, listen, in the, um, in the meantime, uh, be safe. I mean, I, 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 I hope you're taking, uh, you know, some, some, some precautions because um, we need I people am. like I you. I don't want to, you know, <laughs> be too frightened. Um, I do come from a very proud family. We do uh, love our country very much. As I, as I mentioned, my, uh, my father and grandfather did serve in the military, and we have a very patriotic and good family. And I um, hopefully that will continue on and do our good work uh, and into the future. Uh, are your parents still living? Is your father still living? Yes, he's still. I think he's listening now, so um, hopefully he'll be. How did, I mean, as someone who served uh, he, for your country, how does he feel about, about this book? He's very proud of it. Uh, he, and basically, um, he's seen firsthand what's gone on in the military. Um, he knows what, what's been happening with the country. Uh, he served for many years in the Army. Um, my, my brother-in-law also served in the Navy. Uh, my grandfather was in World War II. I heard a lot of stories from him about, um, you know, military life and uh, how things work in the military world. And and a lot of my uh, background really comes from that, too. And, um, you know, hopefully um, that kind of background that I have informs my writing, I think. Absolutely. And I to be um, upfront and, and honest with, our, with my approach in terms of how I... Got it. Respect the facts. Okay, Johnny, I appreciate uh, your time tonight. John Kerner, I appreciate it. Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. His website, paranormalwalks.com. He also runs a paranormal walk. Uh, we've linked up to that on richardserrett.com. In the meantime, follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, and I hope wherever you are, you're warm and safe and with the one you love. Albert, the intern, is here. Tim Spreen, my technical producer, is here. Now, listen, they're not the ones I love. That would be the mighty Aphrodite, of course. She's fast asleep. Don't get me wrong, I'm very fond of Albert and Tim. They do a great job. Tim is, uh, of course, our technical producer. Extraordinaire. And Albert takes care of the website, among other things, richardserrett.com, and he's posted some great stories in the highlight carousel this week. There's a link there uh, to sign the disclose, uh, disclosure petition. Uh, this is the uh, the UFO disclosure uh, petition, uh, really the initiative of UFO disclosure advocate Stephen Bassett, and they need to gather 100,000 signatures by February 6th. That's fast approaching. The idea is to pressure the um, the president uh, or the Obama administration to hold real congressional hearings into the UFO ET issue. All you need to do is click on that slide, and it'll take you to the uh, the page where you can sign the petition, and you don't have to be a U.S. citizen. That's the disclosure. They need 100,000 signatures by Feb 6th. Again, that's posted on the highlight carousel at richardserrett.com. And while you're there, you may also want to check out a story. It looks like it came right out of the, the, uh, the movie Rocket Man. Do you remember that? It's titled, First Jetman. Jetman flies over Dubai Desert. A former fighter pilot and Guinness record holder, known as Jetman, has performed a new stunt, taking over the skies of the United Arab Emirates. High-flying Swiss national Yves Rossi teamed up with a Dubai uh, gentleman flying above the wealth of its land. To fly alone is great, he said, but to fly with another guy is greater. Rossi, who is equipped with a pair of jet-propelled wings, said in a new 4K video before taking part in a formation flight, 
with a, with a Hungarian acrobatics champion, Vera Zoltan, conquering the heights in a cloudless Dubai. And there's also a great story there about Yuri Geller, who uh, we're trying to get on the show, incidentally. A great story about a spoon-bending masterclass he recently held in England earlier this month. Again, all of these stories posted in the highlight carousel at the top of the page at richardserrett.com. Once again, happy to announce my special live event series, Follow the Truth is Back, Follow the Truth 2, featuring, featuring some more amazing speakers. And again, takes place the evening Sunday, April 26th at the Region Theatre in Oshawa. And I'll be presenting more than a half dozen amazing speakers, including the Honourable Paul Hellyer, Canada's former Minister of Defence and Deputy Prime Minister, to talk about the money mafia. Rosemary Ellen Guiley will, perform, will be performing a live demonstration of her spirit box, and will attempt to contact spirits in this beautiful old theatre. Canada's Edgar Casey, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, media scientist and JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal will unpack the Zapruder film, Frame by Frame, The Lost and Found Tribes of Israel, with Miss Jane Steele, former co-host of Shock Talk, with Bloom and Steele. Victor Vigiani will present the smoking gun documents which prove the government is aware of and concerned about the UFO ET reality, and a special exhibit and presentation featuring an exact replica of the Holy Shroud of Turin, believed by millions of Christians to be the actual burial cloth of Christ. So, if you missed the first one, Follow the Truth Summit in November, don't miss this one. Follow the Truth, live, Regent Theatre, Oshawa, Sunday, April 26th. For more details, visit followthetruth.tv, and you can order your tickets by calling the box office 905 721 3399. Those are important numbers. Don't forget them. In fact, the next 45 minutes or so is all about numbers and numerology. I uh, don't know about you, but I'm constantly followed by certain numbers. Uh, I'll give you an example. 1010. Uh, I, I think I've mentioned this on the air before. The mighty Aphrodite and I met at another radio station with the frequency 1010. And then my twin boys were born on October 10th, that's 1010. The first was born at 10 minutes past 10 in the morning, another 1010. <clears throat> and I'll often look over at a clock. Has this happened to you? Albert, you look at a clock and it always it's the same number. For me, 1010. Whenever I look over at the clock, it's 1010. Anyway, I, I believe that, that numbers have a certain power or energy. And I believe... Uh, that like my next guest, that the language of the universe and its creator is numbers. And here's what my guest has written about the importance of numbers. Numerology, the study of the occult significance of numbers, is a science, much like astrology, that is completely dismissed by contemporary corporeal science, corporeal science. Numerology lies at the heart of gematria. And in the opinion of my next guest, Without understanding numerology, one cannot possibly intuit the beauty and utter simplicity of mathematics. Mathematics is not merely quantitative, but qualitative as well. Numbers are not cold, dead, dry, arbitrary accidents of cosmic chaos, but the language and lifeblood of the creative force behind creation. Numbers, as understood by the Greek and Egyptians, are cosmological principles whose essence plays out and are revealed to us in the material world. Numbers contain within them an inherent message. Each number has a story to tell, 
and each of these stories pertain to the magnificence of the creation of our cosmos. But no matter how many stories are told, no matter how many infinite numbers unfold to weave the manifested matrix of all material creation, all divisions will ultimately lead back to the one philosophy that lies behind every true science and spirituality that has graced this blessed earth, and that is the incontrovertible fact that all is one. Those are the words of Marty Leeds, the author of three books, Pi and the English Alphabet, Volume 1, Volume 2, and The Peacock's Tales, The Alchemical Writings of Claudia Pavanos. His third book in the series, Pi and the English Alphabet, Volume 3, is slated for release sometime this year, and he has an ongoing lecturing series available, lecture series available for free on YouTube. Uh, we'll tell you about that later. He's the host of the podcast, The Marty Leeds Mathema Mathematical Radio Hour, discussing everything from myth, math, spirituality, philosophy, sacred geometry, lost civilizations, and the holy sciences. Marty Leeds, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Coming in loud and clear. I got to ask you uh, about the the thirty three that you use at the end of your name, and for example, in in your YouTube series, and I believe on your email as well. The significance of thirty three. I mean, that's a, a number familiar. Many of us, uh, you know, that we we talk about uh, the Freemasons and so forth. Why thirty three? Uh, well, for me, it was just the the year that I started doing all of this stuff, basically. Uh, I think my book came out when I was 32, 33, and so I have an affinity towards the number because of that. But, I mean, the number 33 is when you get into the philosophical exploration of numbers, you find that the number 33, especially like rep digits like 33 or 333, 111, these sorts of numbers will come up again and again. And they're kind of like, you know, what I call them is like vertices in the archetypal architecture of creation. They allow you to sort of navigate your way through and start to understand um, the grand architect's architecture. So um, that's kind of the best way I can explain 33. Well, there, there are a number of sort of systems uh, when we're talking about numerology in the West. I guess we, we, we sort of follow the, the, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks and Pythagoras, the Pythagorean – is it called the Pythagorean screed where each letter – is given a number, A is 1, B is 2, C is 3. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, it's been given a bunch of different names. Like in English, it's known as English Gematria or Gematria. It's known as Kabbalism. Um, you know, in, in some circles, it's basically just known as numerology. But um, yeah, so it's like many different cultures have had this sort of mathematical foundation behind languages. And there's something something very mysterious and mystical going on with the relationship that numbers have with letters in all of these different languages. Well, let's explore that, uh, this relationship with, with numbers and, and letters. I mean, what possessed <clears throat> someone like Pythagoras, for example, to a assign a number to a letter. Well, we're not even sure if he did or not. Actually, I just had a, a conversation this morning. Uh, I was a guest on 42 Minutes, and we were and we were covering Pythagoras. And one of the things that we covered was the fact that we don't even know. You know, there's there's question whether he was even a real man or not. You know, because there's all of this sort of lore and legends and things that are sort of grafted onto the stories of Pythagoras. You know, albeit like he was a uh, his, you know, he was born from an immaculate conception. He was considered a sun god. He had, you know, all of these sorts of things. So, um, you know, if there was a man named Pythagoras, um, you know, and then we look, it was okay. Well, why, why would he be compelled to do this? And I think the answer to that is that this is this this art, this this scientific art, is what we could call gematria or Kabbalah, has a long history, and we could say that pretty much. You know, it's probably survived prehistory, and as long as languages have been around, there's been an understanding that there's been mathematics attached to them. And even when we look at 
any sort of letter in any sort of language, what you're looking at is a geometric form, period. There's no question there. Every, every single you know, letter that you see in whether that's acrylic or Arabic or you know, Aramaic or Latin or Greek or Hebrew or in, even into English, we see that these are formed with simple geometry, with simple strokes, arcs and lines. And so right then and there, before we even get into the um, how mathematics or numbers themselves have a relation to, to particular letters, you see that the symbols in and of themselves are created through geometry. And then we can get into the, the mathematical language that is geometry according to Right. You know, some intellectual heavyweights of, you know, history. Well, you, 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 um, you have a great quote here from Galileo um, who says, The universe cannot be read until we have learnt the language and become familiar with the characters in which it is written. It is written in mathematical language and the letters are triangles, circles and other geometrical figures, which means it is humanly impossible to comprehend – sorry, without which means it is humanly impossible to comprehend a single a word. Well, this would tend to suggest then that that uh, you know there was a great deal of thought in in uh, when when these you know letters were devised in order to give them what a, a sort of a hidden meaning or a, 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 um, an encryption. Yes, and that really gets to the question of um, you know how our language is created, of which we don't really have an answer for. Many people assume that I've, I've heard this a lot, especially with English, that it's sort of this like. Um, you know, cobbled together cowboy language or something like that, you know, that has just evolved throughout time with no sort of um, intention or meaning behind it. And I mean, I would completely disagree with that. But we really don't know how languages are formed. Like we don't know who created, you know, the Greek alphabet. We don't know who created Latin, you know, and we, you know, English is is kind of late in the game. It's 1500s, 1600s when we talk about the modern English alphabet. So we don't know who created that as well. Um, the thing that I, I try to do with the work that I'm engaged in is, is sort of look back and say, okay, since we don't, since we can prove that we don't know who created the alphabet, maybe we can go into the alphabet and see what it has to offer us and see if there is a pattern, an organization, a structure, a hidden meaning within that. And that's the work that I'm engaged in, what I tried to do. We already know for a fact, with, it's unquestionable that Latin, uh, Greek, and Hebrew – you know, Arabic, all of these other languages for sure had a mathematics behind them. So it would just, you know, through logic and reason, it just it lent me into the study of, hey, let's see if we can find some structure in English. All right, Marty, uh, stand uh, pat when we come back. Let's get into, uh, give us a crash course in, in sort of, as you call it, the crux of numerology, one to nine and decimal parity. How does this work? And, uh, and then we'll delve into the power of numbers. Marty Leeds, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And we are back with Marty Leeds uh, discussing numerology. All right. Give us a crash uh, course. You call it the crux of numerology, Marty. Um, the crux of numerology, you could, you could really kind of hone it down to one principle being decimal. It's called decimal parity. It's got a bunch of different names, decimal parity, digital rooting, Kabbalistic reduction, Pythagorean addition. And basically what it is, and a lot of people are, are, are kind of hip to this um, more so than maybe in the last like 30 years, but of basically breaking any number down to the numbers one through nine with zero being a placeholder. And we'll get into this. But for instance, when you just walk up your number line, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, any number after nine you can break down to these digits one through nine. So we get to 10, we can just reduce this down. One plus zero is one. 11, one plus one is two. 12, one plus two is three. 
ad infinitum, of course. So it doesn't really matter what number you look at, how complex or large the number is. Ultimately, by reducing down or using simple arithmetic, bringing these numbers together, we get to what we find that is the qualitative aspect of the number. So, um, and this is what's considered the, the crux of numerology. Now, wh- why this ends up being like really important is that there's a deep philosophy here that we can actually f- find on your two hands, but also found within the, um, the expression of the, the holy number 10. Um, the Pythagorean Tetractus talked about the number 10. Of course, there's 10 commandments and you have, you know, 10 fingers on your hand. So when we use this numerological principle of digital rooting, what it does is breaks down the decimal system of zero being the placeholder or, um, you know, magnifier or, you know, symbol of power, if you will, because it's a magnifier of 10. You have zero. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And that gives you 10 digits. So this is basically the, the base, the base of numerology. And this is a, a core function in just how the mathematics work in and of themselves. A lot of times numerology is, is sort of like blown off because of, well, there's been a lot of perversion of people that have, you know, misinterpreted or misused numerology for their own means and ends and things. But really, when you look at numerology, this is something that's innate and inherent in the mathematics. And I think this is something that was widely understood by all of the great mathematicians of, of throughout history. And in, in fact, you're not really even doing true mathematics, true quantitative and qualitative mathematics, unless you bring in the study of numerology. And this really isn't that controversial considering the word numerology means numer means number and ology means comes from the word, of course, uh, logos, which is word of God or and where we get the word logic. And so numerology, the word is just saying that there's a number logic or logic to numbers. Well, of course there is because this is where logic is actually derived. You mentioned the word of God and going back to the Old Testament and the book of numbers, which if you read it is a very kind of peculiar uh, book. You know, there's a lot of detail and information there and and uh, measurements and and um you know the weight of things and the number of things as the, the name of the book implies and and mm-hmm. one could walk away from that book saying well what the heck was that all about what what do you make of the book of numbers I, the, the same that I make of the whole book, you know, ultimately you're looking at a a, a deeply mystical, deeply symbolic mathematical treaty or text. That's ultimately what you're looking at. I mean, of course, the Bible has, just like all of these ancient holy books, in my opinion, but has, um, let me explain it this way. The, 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 story, the stories in the Bible are the central hub in the wheel, if you will. So we have the story that we're all focused on. And then in that story, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of narratives that are going on. And all of those narratives become the spokes of the wheel, if you will. So one of those spokes is an astrotheological spoke. One is a philosophical. One is a psychological. One is a sacred geometric. One is a numeric, et cetera, et cetera. And so the whole book to me is written that way. Now, ultimately, what, what you know, the claim that I'm making, but it, which is once again really not that controversial since we know it happens in this other language, in all these other languages, that there's a mathematical foundation in, throughout that book. And to truly understand what's the, the message that's being purveyed, you have to go and understand the mathematics first. And so this is why a lot of these stories end up being extremely cryptic and really trying to – it's hard to really get your hands around because really what they're doing is hiding this deep esoteric holy science really is what it is beneath those words. You know, And this is of course where we get read between the lines because you have to read between the story that's beneath the story. Uh, and, and do you subscribe to the, uh, the idea that, that there are Bible codes, that there are – 
uh, within the passages of not only Numbers, but the five books of, of the Torah, that there are encrypted messages, perhaps placed there by the Creator himself. Well, when, you know, when we talk about, um, you know, the creator itself, really what you're talking about when, when you hear of the lore or legend that books were written by, you know, the God himself or the gods themselves, really what you're talking about is people that have elevated themselves up to the status of apotheosis or people that had had Gnostic revelations, people that were connected so deeply to spirit that they were sort of allowing these things to kind of flow out of them, if you will. That's the, that's the best way that I can make sense of that. And so this, that's exactly what I think the books are, are basically these, the, you know, that there's hidden codes beneath there. And you know, once again, without elevating yourself as the book is intended to do, without elevating yourself to the, you know, to, to receive a Gnostic revelation, to have that mystical spirit, you're not really going to understand the deeper message is within. And we actually see this problem happening right now with the fact of the literalism that's taken with, you know, all of these different religions that we take these stories literally. And then, you know, the, the horrors that manifest from these things, you know, and th this is an enormous problem. So, so uh, let's sort of connect the numbers with uh, the alphabet or, or certain words. Um, so if a word, it has a, a numerical value as well, what is what is the the power or the purpose of that? Uh, maybe you can give us an example uh, of a um, a word. Give us the numerical value, and then we can sort of explore that. Um, yes. Well, we can look at maybe we could look at. I don't, I don't know how much time we have, but maybe we could look at one very particular thing in in the Bible in pointing to the number twenty six. Um, in in the Hebraic, the Hebraic tetragrammaton, which is this is known as Yahweh or Jehovah or God, right? Right. Well, in Hebrew, this sums to well, it's Hivav Hiyad. It's five six five ten. This sums to twenty six. Of course, there's twenty six letters of our English alphabet. Now, the, um, the 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 two names of God that's given to us in the Holy Bible are Lord and God. Well, Lord is L-O-R-D. This is 2254. This equals 13. And God is G-O-D is 724. This equals 13. And so combining the two names of God that are given to us in the Holy Bible, in the English translation of the Holy Bible, we find Lord God equaling 26. Well, this is the name of Jehovah that we have in the Hebraic Tetragrammaton, right? Right. Well, right. What's what's really so we have twenty six letters of the English alphabet. The Hebrew tetragrammaton equals twenty six. Lord God equals twenty six. So what's what's important about twenty six? Well, what is God? God is of course Father Time, right? Father is the Father. The name Father is God. So basically, all of time, everything that in is in creation is God. That would make sense of the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresence of God because God is interpenetrating with all things, through all things. This is where monotheism comes in. Monotheism is actually oneness and thea is, of course, well, theology, the study of God. So the oneness of the study of God. When we see this number 26, we actually find it in Saturn. Saturn is S-A-T-U-R-N. This is 617-651. And this equals 26. Well, Saturn is actually known as father time, Right. Right, so this right. is where chronos is Greece, where we get words like chronology and, and you know synchronize, things like that. So we have this planet that's attributed to time and it equals 26 as well, right? So we have all these numbers coming together and to see, you know, uh, you know that all point to this one singular number, 26. Well, Scorpio, 
in this cipher. Scorpio equals 26. Scorpio actually points to the center of our galaxy. Its tail in the constellation actually points to the center of our galaxy. So really what you have is this recognition that within one simple number, you can sort of tie all of these things together about what the, the deeper meaning of what they mean with why Saturn is time, what, you know, what, what God really is, where to find God is by heading through the, you know, heading to the center, center in and of itself. The word center in and of itself equals 26. So to, to, the, the story comes from the numbers first because the numbers are homogenous. They're universal in nature, right? Every culture ever, every, that's ever existed on this planet uses the same number system. Now, they may you know, track time differently, like the Mayans track t- time differently than the Egyptians. But ultimately, they're using the same numbers. They're using the same ratios. They're using the same mathematical constants when they build their cathedrals, temples, and things like that. So... The number 26 is something that's inherent within creation that's going to transcend all of these different cultures. And we can see that it points to, you know, once again, God. Now, the 26 letters of our English alphabet, alphabet comes from the AB, AB which is Latin for father. So ah, we have right, the tetragrammaton referring to father, right? Right. Referring to, you know, father time, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just kind of one way to explain the importance of like a number 26. That is uh, that's fascinating. But uh, while you were talking about the number twenty six, um, I my mind went to another number, which was twenty three, and I was remembering that Jim Carrey movie, The Number Twenty Three, came out. I, I just know, watched it again. seven or eight years ago, a kind really? of a psychological thriller. And it, and uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's about you know his obsession with the the twenty three enigma. And I mean, is is that a work of fiction, or is there an esoteric belief? Uh, in all these permutations of the number 23. No, that's – see, once again, this is something that is inherent in the mathematics again. Like the tw- the, the number 23 is actually um, – you we can actually find this within the, the construction of the human temple and the human being. So when a man and woman come together, they each share 23 chromosomes, making 46 chromosomes to make the temple the human, you know, the vessel for the spirit to exist in. And that's created using chromosomes. Chroma means color course and soma is of the body and so of course where do we get color we get it from light it's the light of the body that's what a human being is so when we look at the number 23 we see that the the construction of the the, the temple you know as 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 bill donahue said that god dwells in a temple not made by the hands of man and the only temple not made by the hands of man is the ones on the side of your foreheads the word temple actually equals 23 aha this so this number 23 is directly referring to the human being and the construction of the human being. Now, the, the number 23, you know, circle, heaven, temple, beauty, occult, natural, all of these words equal, you know, 23. And so we see a direct connection to the number of chromosomes and um, this number of heaven. You know, so we, we can actually see that, you know, there, that there's when, when, you know, we hear of religious traditions say, well, the kingdom of heaven resides in you. And you understand that mathematically, that's absolutely true, then you start to realize that there's something much more deeper than going on than relegating heaven to a place up in the, he- you know, in the stars that is unreachable by the hand of man until after you die. No, it's something that's within every single human being. Now, I don't know. You, you, you threw something out there that's uh, I'd love to, you know, delve into. I don't know if we have time. <laughs> it would, you know, it took uh, thousands of years, for example, you know, to, to, to write the Bible. Do we have time to talk about the idea that mathematically you, you, can, you can prove that heaven resides within us? Can we explore that a little bit? Or would that take... Well, just kind of like what, you know, 
what we were just saying about, you know, w- when we look at the, the, the numbers first, when we realize that, math, uh, you know, as Galileo said, that mathematics is a language of creation and that the and so in order to really understand the creator and his creation, we have to go to the language in which it used to create things. So therefore, once again, the number 23, especially in, uh, you know, especially in English gematria, of course, but this number 23 is something that's um, inherent within the human being and the makeup of the human being. So therefore, that number in and of itself has a certain importance. Um, when, if, if we look at the philosophy behind this, this kind of go, gets away from the numbers a little bit. But when we look at the philosophy of the kingdom of heaven resides in you, right, or um, on earth as it is in heaven, right, right. Um, that which is in the stars is also on the earth, that which on the earth is also in the stars. What's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an Australian elder, uh, Aboriginal, that said everything under creation is represented in the soil and in the stars. Everything has two witnesses, one on earth and one in the sky. Everything is represented in the ground and in the sky. Basically, all of these philosophies that are that are shared all over the world are basically saying that everything that's up in the heavens is a perception of what's created in the human vessel, if you will. So this is a hologram. It's a it's an illusion. It's a perception. It's a matrix. It's, it's a simulation. It's it's um, well, Maya in Hindu means illusion. The Mayan people it means illusion. That this material world is an illusion and it's a reflection of the heavens. So when we look out and we cast heaven upon the, the stars and into the stars. Really what we're doing by looking out is actually simultaneously looking in. And this is what this philosophy sort of encapsulates and, and all of these religions encapsulate this philosophy, you know, and we can find this. And so the idea of the, where, where does heaven exist? Is it out there or is it within us? Well, if we come to understand that that creation is actually built with the, the, the reflection or perception of man, then we realize that no, heaven is everywhere around us. That heaven and earth are unified. They're one. They're 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 without one, you can't have the other, if you will. If you know what I'm saying. How did you get into this, Marty? How did you become so fascinated with with numbers? Um, just what, just kind of pursuing an answer over the years. You know, just kind of feeling lost in the world. <laughs> and, you know, I've seen a lot of the turmoil and strife and, and pain and things like that in the world and then trying to make sense of the world around me and then letting that investigation lead me and not my own wacky theories or whatever lead the investigation. And if you do, you know, if you undergo this investigation, you go with an open heart, uh, you know, a noble spirit or whatever, and you go with, you know, earnestly looking for a truth then that's going to lead you wherever you need to go. And of course, anyone that really does this is going to end up leading to mathematics because once again, as we were saying, you know, there, you know, there is a creator being creative with creation and he's building this creation using this mathematical language. And so ultimately, if you're looking for that truth, you're going to be led there. You know, the, uh, now I, I struggled with math all through my um, educational career. Um, mm-hmm. and continued, you know, uh, uh, anything after long division, forget it. Did this give you, uh, we, I mean, were you strong in math before or did it give you a new appreciation for math? Did you find yourself going back and sort of revisiting algebra and things like that and trying to figure out, you know, how uh, this might all connect? No, I was terrible at math, man. <laughs> I, seriously, I, I, was, I was never good at math. In fact, I think I got a C in college algebra. And how about now? And and so, and now I would even say that I'm not, I mean, you know, I say this and this guy kind of gets a, the roll of the eyes with a lot of people, but like, I don't even consider myself a mathematician now in one way. Um, I, I just kind of, you know, just explored the subject. And I, when I explored it, I got to, I went to the fundamentals. Like I went to, I basically started learning 
it all over again. Like I remember, I, you know, I wrote in my journal, I was writing out multiplication tables. I was writing out tables of addition. You know, I was I'm like, doing that right now with my kids. Yeah. Listen, we got to take that. a, sorry, Marty, we got to oh, take sorry, a break. Go when ahead. we come back, we'll, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we're teaching math all wrong. Uh, we'll get into that. And I also want to find out what is going on with pi. Think about this. To date, computers have calculated over 10 trillion digits of pi. One of the most important numbers in mathematics. What does it mean? We'll get into that with Marty Leeds right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Marty Leeds is with us, and we've hooked up to his website or linked up to it on uh, richardserra.com. Just click on Marty's uh, name there, uh, and it'll take you to Marty Leeds. That's with two E, martyleeds33.com. Uh, I want to talk about pi here in a minute, Marty, but I, I want to ask you that question again about the way we teach mathematics in school. I mean, do you think... Uh, perhaps um, we're teaching math to children all wrong, and is is that perhaps by design? Well, especially yes. I mean, especially with Common Core now, which is just horrific. It's just the. I mean, there's there's a gazillion ways that you can teach somebody math better than what they're doing right now. That's. I mean, that's for sure. Um, the the one thing that that I always talk about with this the the understanding that I've come to with this subject is that. We teach uh, even in the university setting. Basically, we teach one way of looking at mathematics, and that's a quantitative way of looking at mathematics. But that's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the qualitative way. And um, so, I, I think the fact that we've, we, you know, we've reduced once again numerology to like a pseudoscience or it's considered recreational math. I think what we've done is sort of like cut off half of our understanding of this of of mathematics. Now, it's really interesting that how many people have. I, I've talked to, you know, spoken to on podcasts and things like that that have said that every time that they, you know, in school or whatever, they they couldn't stand math. They were terrible at it. They just couldn't wrap their head around it. And yet when you teach a lot of this, these mathematical principles in in a, a different way by looking at the symbolism, looking at the geometry, um, you know, understanding basic mathematical constants in creation, people start to get it a lot easier. And one of what I would say one of the, the, the easiest and most like um, expedient ways to teach somebody math is actually through sacred geometry. And this is understanding, ba- once again, basic fundamental philosophical scientific quantitative and qualitative principles using basic you know n- number and basic symbols and shapes and so um what what i do with with what i teach is i barely go past arithmetic really you know i square root some things i cube some things a little algebra here and there but b- besides basically add, add you know add subtract multiply multiply and divide excuse me um besides those basic you know, arithmetic principles, I don't really go beyond that. And I think that you can learn a whole lot just from that study in and of itself. Let's talk about pi. It's, uh, it's an irrational, infinite, transcendental number, which means what? Well, um, everything, <laughs> to answer succinctly. Um, yeah, I mean, pi, to me, how, how I've come to understand it anyway, is that pi is a representation of the creation of our universe in one way. And that that's, this, is what, this is what pi represents in that, in its geometry, in its unfolding nature, in its infinite nature, the fact that we can't see its tail, the fact that it starts with the, the, the holy three, the holy trinity that we find in, you know, all of these different religions. 3.14, 3.14. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. So 3.14159, et cetera, et cetera, starts with that holy three before the decimal place. And that, of course, 
you know, once again, we could go all over the world and, and, and find um, a glorification and exaltation of the three. We can look at it in the Trinacria, the Triskel, the, you know, the, the Fleur de Lis, the Holy Trinity of the, the Judeo-Christian or Christian canon, of course. We can look at it in, you know, Shiva Brahman and Vishnu in Hinduism. We can look at it as Isis, Osiris, Horus in Egypt. And so we have all of these – this is past, present, and future. This is the, the, the preservation force, the destructive force, and the, and the you know, creation force all merging into one. This is the three sides of a triangle becoming one. So pi, you know, to get back to your question, pi is sort of like this symbolic representation of all of these different principles that that are at work in in our universe, and sort of encapsulates them into one. What what I what I tried to you know explore with pi, at least in the last book, and you know, I hinted on it in this this next book that I'm working on, is that pi is a representation of the creation of our universe, and that just by simple geometry, you can kind of understand. The, the beginnings of how our universe was formed and kind of what what unfolded geometrically after that are there if you will are there i mean you mentioned that that pi has been encoded in temples all through e- egypt and and uh, the great pyramids of of giza uh, we've talked about that before on the show but are there mm-hmm. words uh, that that contain that the, the number is three point one four. Is there a you know a letter representation? Uh, I don't know. Does it does it equate with vibrations? Um, well, there is. I mean, there's a couple different places we could go here. I mean, there is, for instance, um, pawn. Pawn, which the pawn in a chess is P A W N. This is three one four one. So in the game of chess, which is something I've covered in the second volume, and I've got a couple of videos on it, but in the game of chess, there's, there's two lunar, a solar, and a processional calendar as well, well as multiple ways of obtaining pi through the, the simple um, arrangement of the numbers that are attached to the characters of the game of chess. And so, for instance, like I was just saying, pawn is 3141, so we can see that the pawn is the most prevalent piece of the game, and yet it's saying pi, 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 pi. There's 16 pawns, of course, to a chessboard. So that's one example of, of, of you know, what you're saying. As far as, like, vibrations and things are concerned, well, you know, you know, at least according to the Kabayan, the entire universe is vibration. And then, of course, we look into modern science and the quantum theory, and we look at you know the the you know we could go into you know the, what, what lies beneath the heart of an atom and things like that. But everything seems to be moving, spinning, and vibrating. So, um, vibration is, of course, a, a, a fundamental of our creation. Well, I, and we see that in ebb and flow. We see that in waxing and waning. We see that in divergence and convergence. We see that within the polarity of the man and woman. So. Right. I mean, I, I, I've seen those uh, you know documentaries where they'll they'll show a, a sand, uh, a sand sculpture or or uh, patterns in the sand being formed by, by by vibrations. And and I think there's a school of thought that could suggest that that's how the universe was created. You know, God spoke the word in or, or the world into existence. Uh, maybe we can we can explore a little bit of that when we come back. Uh, again, the you know vibration and the number values that we assign to vibration. For example, Tesla talked about the powers of threes, sixes, and nines. We'll do that when we return. My conversation with Marty Leeds as we discuss numerology right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Marty Leeds stays with us. And again, his website is www.martyleeds, L-E-E-D-S, 33.com. So we were talking about uh, pi, uh, mathematics, as you've written here, the language that uh, God wrote the universe in. 
uh, or that's Galileo, I guess, saying that. But th- that's what you're on about here. And and um, I, I want to talk about um, vibration. And uh, if if that's what Galileo was talking about, mathematics, you know, God using mathematics or God using vibration to create the universe. Yeah, and this actually this leads to pi. It, at least it, it led me to pi anyway. Um, when you look at a lot of the creation stories have the idea that um, God emitted a sound, spoke a word, and therefore spoke it into creation. Um, number one, we have the, the, you know, the modern science of somatics where it's basically understanding that geometric forms can arise from, from sound. Uh, you know, and we see this. Um, we can see this at certain frequencies or certain hertz that you know certain forms will arise, and they're often you know symmetrical and that sort of thing. You can also destroy with vibration. We've seen you know glass. Uh, the, if you can find the resonant frequency and so forth. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and and the creative force and destructive force are two poles on one ultimate movement. You know, so um, of course vibration can create just like there's dissonance and harmony in music. Of course, so um, when we look at when we look at all these like different creation stories, like there's the Mayan story that it's um, you know it's it's something to the effect I'm paraphrasing here, but it's something to the effect of the word of the one was unlo- unloosed itself in stone like silence and and shuddered all of eternity, something like that. So you have this word that was spoken and. In Hinduism, you have this, you know, the vibratory essence that created all of creation being the Om, that sound. Uh, in the, in of course, in the, the Holy Bible, you have God saying, let there be light. So God speaking light. In Latin, um, gramma means uh, letter and gamma means light. So you have the idea that the letters, of course, that are forming, that are forming words are also of light. Mm. So that, that, you know, it's a really close correlation, of course, to what we see in the Bible. So... You know, so, you know, what does all this stuff have to do with pi? Well, when we talk about a word of God, we have to ask the question, like, what language does God speak? What language is God speaking? Well, once again, according to guys like Kepler, who said, you know, uh, geometry existed before the creation. It is co-eternal with the mind of God. Galileo saying language, you know, mathematics is language of God. Then we have to say, okay, if God spoke a word, then God spoke a word. That word is is a mathematical word. It's, it's a word within the language of mathematics. Now, of course, w- you know, what I'm basically saying is that word is pi. And that word is – that's what pi represents, that the pi is actually the, 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 the lost word of masonry in one way. Hmm. You know, we, we hear about the you know, Hiram Abiff and the lost Masonic word. Well, that lost word is, of course, the word of pi. And that we will see the geometry of pi, the numbers of pi, the, the elements attributed to pi, the, you know, all of that stuff play out in all of these different ways in creation. We can find it in chess. We can find we can see pi as a mathematical representation of the symmetrical nature of your body. These sorts of things, and so that's ultimately what I believe they're saying when we talk about a word, because we have to go into the language of math to understand that word of God. If we were to ever, uh, I guess, solve pi, in other words, you know, find the the pattern. It goes on for tw- ten. Is it ten trillion digits after the decimal point, and they still haven't found the pattern? If we, if and when we were to discover the patent, would that be sort of, I don't know, the, the, uh, the unified theory or whatever that, that Einstein was looking for? I mean, is, 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 is that, is pi is then the, the, the key to the universe, understanding the universe? You know, it's, it's, it's one, yeah, I mean, to, to me, it's one of the, the major cornerstones of, of understanding the universe because once again, you're understanding 
the the what do we want to say the mathematical matrix or template that the the universe created to create everything and so everything sort of moves through these templates of these major major mathematical ideas like phi and pi euler's formula things like this pi being of course one of the most important ones now when you said we're looking for a pattern in the universe right like pi, if we're looking for a pi, or we're looking for a pattern in pi. Well, pattern comes from the Latin word pater, and pater means father. So, <laughs> so when Amazing. we say we're looking for, yeah, we're looking for a pattern. We're looking for the father. Well, of course, once we take the literalism out of it, we don't. We realize that we're not talking about some male figure that's in the sky that's looking down upon us and judging us and things like that. What we're talking about is the pattern which creates the geometry of creation. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come. Our Father is our patterns, the patterns of the sky that came down to earth. Our patterns, our pattern, our Father, our patterns who art in heaven. What is art? Art is a creative force. And that is why there's a creator being creative with creation. That's why creativity is at the heart of creation. You're making me go aha a lot. Was there an aha moment for you when this all started to add up? No pun intended. Yeah, it, it happened with Pi. It was, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't ask anybody to believe me when I say this. I don't really care if anyone believes me if I say this. But I had this sort of mystical moment, this Gnostic revelation or epiphany about Pi one night, and that is what, and I had been working with it for, you know, I don't know how, you know, maybe six or nine months or something like that at, the, at that point, but, you know, that I had this revelation with it, and ever since then, it's it's put me on this course of, you know, writing the books and doing the lectures and, you know, all of everything that I'm doing, so, and ever since then, there's been all of these sort of aha moments. In fact, all the aha moments have culminated into the books and culminated into, you know, the videos and that sort of thing. You mentioned, uh, uh, you mentioned the Freemasons, uh, and you also mentioned um, geometry, and I'm, and I'm thinking about the, the, the symbol we've all seen on many uh, Masonic buildings, and that's the capital G. Uh, which is sort of nestled in between a compass and a square. What is the significance of that? Um, that's that symbol. I actually did an entire video on just on that symbol alone. Um, and it's like I think it's like half hour or something, like forty minutes maybe. But there's there's just myriad things that we can draw just from that symbol alone. One of them being the um, the symbolic elements to help us deconstruct or de you know decode the mathematics of the English alphabet to find the cipher to be able to decode the mathematics of our alphabet so that's one of the things and um, one one of the ways we we don't really have time to go through over it here but you know just to kind of you know go through this kind of quick when the the compass creates a circle. And the, the square creates a square, of course. So the compass and square merging together are the, the, the merging of the squaring of the square and the circle. In sacred geometrical canon, the circle was known as heaven. Square was known as earth. And these were given the distinctions, uh, numeric distinctions of three and four. So when we add three and four together, the merging of the square and the circle, the merging of the heaven and the earth, what we find is seven. Three plus four is seven. G, of course, being the seventh letter of our alphabet. And so the, you know, the, the cipher for the gematria for, of our English alphabet is encoded within that symbol. And, the, and of course, the only way that you're going to understand that is if you understand, deeply understand and have investigated deeply the, the study of symbolism. And understand what the three and four is. And of course, when we look at symbolism, once again, that we started this conversation with, we're looking at the letters of our alphabet, we look at symbolism, ultimately what we're talking about is geometry. And that's why the, you know, the Freemasons revere um, geometry so much, you know. 
What did Tesla mean uh, when he said, you know, sort of behold the power of threes, sixes, and nines? If we can appreciate or understand the power of three, sixes, and nines, it, it, you know, it's a key to understanding the universe. Uh, what, what he was understanding is that when, when there, that there's a how do we want to say this that, that there's a a way to penetrate mathematics and it's and it's through simple numbers you know so three six and nine when we look at the the, the canon of sacred geometry when we look at number symbolism they become really important um, three of course we just talked about six three is a divide you know six is has a three as its divisor. Three is also divisor of nine. We can go into all of that. But one of the things that's important about what he's saying there is that we, I, I think that we tend to overcomplicate math. We, we, we rest on a quick, in fact, hold on. I've got a test. I got a Tesla quote right here. It says today's scientists have substituted mathematics for experiments and they wander off through equation after equation and eventually build a structure which has no relation to reality. And so what he's saying there is that we can understand so much through the simple principles of three, six, and nine, just through understanding number philosophy very simply, and yet we're kind of convoluting it and making mathematics this um, – we're overthinking it. You know, We're making it too difficult. Uh, we talk uh, – on this program, we talk a lot about alternative energy. And uh, right now, of course, there's a lot of talk about zero-point energy. And the number that comes up in, conjun in conjunction or connection with zero-point uh, has to do with 528 hertz. Now, I'm not a, a scientist, don't understand a lot of this. But uh, what, what, uh, what do you gather might be the connection between zero-point energy and 528 hertz? Is that anything there jump out at you? Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak too much on zero point energy because I just don't know enough about it, and I think that there's a lot of conjecture with it. You know, um, to be sure, a lot of people, yeah. Have, yeah, a lot of people have theories on things, but can't really prove a lot of it. So we can look at the number five twenty eight, though, and the importance of the number five twenty eight in relationship to the hertz. Um, when we look at the um, English mile, of course, this is just a multiple of ten. So five thousand two hundred eighty is the number of feet of an English mile. Um, now, where does that come from? Well, there's a bunch of different places that we can actually find it. In fact, I'm going to interview a guy uh, tomorrow on my show um, that found this in the Great Pyramid of Giza in one of the ways. So, But we can actually find this embedded in the metrology of the earth, um, the equatorial circumference of the earth we can actually find is related to the English mile. So we take 360 degrees of a circle. We multiply it by the number of days in the solar year. We multiply that by a thousand and divide by five thousand two hundred eighty, and we get roughly you know twenty four thousand nine hundred twenty. So the equatorial circumference of the Earth is directly related to the English English well foot and mile, five thousand two hundred eighty. Where do we get five twenty eight? Well, there's how many degrees in Scottish Rite Freemasonic ascension? Thirty two and thirty three, right? Correct. So adding one through thirty two, so one plus two plus three plus four, etc., to thirty two gives you the number five twenty eight. So we see that the number 32 is directly related to the number 528. Why else is this important? Because the pace, the human pace is actually 5.28 feet. Wow. So, so we can see that the Scottish Rite, that they were, you know, they're heralding this number 32, which of course transcends Freemasonry. We can see that Jesus Christ lived to 33 years. His name actually adds up to 32, etc., you know, we can see that the, once again, this is something that's inherent in the mathematics. So the, the the English mile and the human pace, and then the number of hertz of you know supposedly or whatever of zero point energy is all related to this one number thirty two, which is of course in English gematria is English Christ religion you know gematria you know et cetera et cetera. We could go on to the number thirty two. So, 
Marty, this is fascinating. I, I have to have you back on to discuss further. Now, I've, I've got about a minute and a half here. Um, but uh, in that 90 seconds, can you just give me an understanding of, uh, you know, the um, the significance of one's life number? I mean, do you subscribe to that? If you add up the, you know, the letters, the numbers relating to the letters in your name and so forth, you get a number. Is, is that... Um, is that important in your in your mind? Uh, yes, but you know, like I do name breakdowns on my on my site, so um, where I'll actually look at somebody's name and then I'll do the you know the mathematical encoding with it, and then I'll explain what those numbers mean, at least how I've come to understand those numbers. So if once again, if somebody's name added to thirty two, I would just kind of you know expound on the number thirty two and all the things we just talked about. The only but when you look at the number and how it relates to your own life, the only person that can actually do any sort of investigation in that is you. Because you lived your life, you walked in your shoes, so you know, you know, synchronistically or whatever, or psychologically, how that, how a particular number might reflect, you know, how you might have a relationship to it. For instance, there was this guy, try to make this quick, um, he contacted me and he said, hey man, I've always been, you know, just drawn to the number 23 my entire life. It was just 23, 23. I just saw 23 everywhere. And his name was Michael. And Michael adds up to 23. Now, if somebody went and told him that, it was like, you know, the, he's the only person that's going to be able to make those correlations if you know what I'm saying. So I, I won't do a numerological reading on anybody else, but I will talk about what those numbers mean so that can help you in your own investigation. And, and Marty, what's your life number? Um, <laughs> well, I have a couple different names. So ah, okay. uh, I, it's actually something I go over in the book where I actually – because I have two pseudonyms that I use and then my you – know, of course, my Christian name or Catholic name or whatever the name that my parents gave me, I guess. So I actually look at the mathematics of all of those numbers and see how that relates. And it was – when I first did it because I would given myself two pseudonyms, I didn't know any of this stuff. And then I went back and I looked at it and I was like, wow, a lot of amazing correlations. So, Marty, this has been uh, fascinating. I hope you'll come back again and share some more time with us. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. MartyLeads33.com. Thanks for this. Uh, thanks to uh, Albert and Tim. Back next week with Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, Candidates Edgar Casey, and Pastor Carl Gallops talking about the trumpet of days. Is this God's final warning? In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.